Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens with mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, uh, Are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. Welcome to Yeah Na Passaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. And this week we are joined by Dr. Mark Bray, who you may know as the author of Antifa, the anti-fascist handbook, but who is also the author of the recent book, The Anarchist Inquisition, Assassins, Activists, and Martyrs in Spain and France. Thanks for joining us, Mark. Yeah, thanks for having me. I guess just to begin with, uh, why did you decide to look into this, all of these uh, bomb shuckers in Spain and France? It, it's kind of, in some ways, a strange choice for me because for to a large extent they're the anarchists that i probably have the least in common with politically <laughs> and so whenever i talk about the subject i i i, I clarify that this is not like a, a prescriptive book or a how-to book uh, it's a history book but but more to the point this came out of my graduate research in history and i, I came to be interested over time in how uh, propaganda by the deed, which is, you know, for listeners who are unfamiliar with the term, was a kind of euphemism that anarchists used for attacks on symbols of authority, uh, particularly at the turn of the 20th century when anarchists in Europe and, and the United States uh, assassinated presidents and kings and prime ministers. I, I came to be interested in how this propaganda by the deed came to be kind of an excuse for state repression in, in France and Spain. And even more interestingly for me, how this repression sparked transnational campaigns that uh, I came to argue could be situated within the history of human rights. And so that kind of paradoxical relationship in this context between human rights and what many people would refer to as terrorism, though I'm I'm, I'm sort of reticent to use that term, how that developed and, and how that challenges our assumptions about real politics at, at the turn of the 20th century. The people in your book really needed to get around the idea that you can't solve all your problems with dynamite. Could you tell us... What, what, could you just lay out this, this sort of cycle that happened where there, there were these incidents of, you know, so-called terrorism, uh, which didn't seem to always actually be uh, the responsibility of the people that were arrested for them that would then lead to these sort of waves of repression and reprisal? Really starting in the early 1890s in Western Europe and elsewhere, a, a kind of faction of the anarchist movement, a minority, but but a significant minority that was largely against mass organization critical of revolutionary unionism, who organized around small affinity groups that came to embrace a kind of communist vision of anarchism, argued that basically the best form of propaganda is is to put deeds into action. And so you see the the era of the attacks, as the French called it, with figures like Ravachol, who attempted to blow up a judge and a prosecutor but failed, or Auguste Fayant, who threw a bomb into the Chamber of Deputies and, and injured uh, a few um, people in attendance, or Emile Henri, 
who bombed a police station and a cafe. And every time a bomb went off, of course, the state would arrest more and more anarchists and radicals. And it became a convenient excuse for the state to repress the labor movement. And the same thing happened in, in Spain, uh, particularly with Paulino Payas, who, who tried to blow up a general and failed. You see a theme here is that most of these attacks failed and, and they frequently injured innocent bystanders, right? So it's a, cer- certainly a cautionary tale. Santiago Salvador threw a bomb into uh, a theater and his argument, right? So he wasn't targeting anyone in particular. He was targeting what he considered to be the bourgeoisie as a whole, right? He made the argument that anyone who would be in this opera house was essentially upper class and therefore deserved to get blown up. And the state started torturing people, arresting people, executing people. But outside of anarchist circles, it, it really didn't generate that much of, a, of an outcry. Most of society figured, ah, these anarchists, they're the enemies of humanity, quote unquote. They're, they're just, they're worse than the worst um, predators in the animal kingdom, they would often argue. It started to change in 1896 with the bombing of a religious procession in Barcelona, when the cycle of repression got even worse, arresting somewhere between 400 and 800 people. And the word of, of torture started to be to come out of uh, Montreal prison where they were imprisoned, really through smuggled letters sewn into the lining of the jacket of some of the prisoners. And that incident started to generate outrage, uh, first abroad in, in France and elsewhere, but then subsequently in Spain, and generated this, this kind of popular conversation around really kind of thinking of anarchists as the canaries in the coal mine. Like, if, if this is what the state is doing to anarchists, then it, it portends potentially awful things for everyone else. A lot of these figures, Mark, their, their deeds were quite spectacular. They generated a huge amount of interest on the part of newspapers, and many of them were or came to be celebrated figures. Can you talk a little bit about these individuals and how they came to be known? And I guess the, the, the movement away from concentrating on propaganda of the deed to the propagandist of the deed. And what what space did these figures begin to occupy in the popular imagination? Anarchists threw bombs before the 1890s. So throughout the 1880s in Spain, for example, there were quite a few bombs in, in a city like Barcelona that were set off, usually in the context of a labor dispute. You know, you have an intransigent boss and some worker or small group of workers decides to teach him a lesson or to intimidate him into uh, acquiescing to the, the grievances of the workers. But there were no arrests made in Barcelona in the 1880s for setting off any of these bombs, which shows you just how incompetent and really small in number the police force was. Coming into the 1890s, it started to change. And I, th- and I argue in the book that the figure that comes to really represent what I call the propagandist by the deed, this kind of figure who becomes emblematic of this kind of uh, one-man quest to topple the state it is the French Ravachol, who, as I mentioned earlier, to avenge some arrested and abused anarchists, tries to blow up a prosecutor and a judge in their apartment buildings. He doesn't even figure out which apartment they live in. He just goes in and sets these bombs off somewhere in the middle of the building, hoping it'll hit them, which is just in so many ways, so many ways a terrible idea. And then after he does it, he's not, he doesn't try to lay low. He, he goes to a cafe. He starts bragging to his, uh, his waiter that like, oh yeah, you should check out anarchism. This is the coolest thing. The waiter's a little weirded out, notices that his, uh, he looks like the description in the newspaper of a suspect in this bombing. And then Ravashol a couple of days later comes back to the same cafe, 
the waiter calls the police and he's arrested. And if, if the story had ended there, you know, it really wouldn't be much of a story. But Ravishol comes to be seen by quite a few of these anarchist insurrectionaries as someone who devoted his existence to attempting to topple the state through dynamite. And so uh, in Spain, for example, Paulino Payas, who, who shortly thereafter tries to blow up this general, he's part of a group that starts a newspaper called Ravachol. And, and more and more, these figures try to emulate him. So when Paulino Payas tries to blow up the general, he could have taken the opportunity to disappear into the crowd and try to escape. Instead, he runs out into the middle of, of the boulevard, throws his cap in the air, says, Viva la Anarquia, and waits for the police to arrest him. Why? I think largely because he wanted to be known as one of these anarchist figures who devoted his life to the cause that he was trying to promote. I don't think he wanted other people to be blamed for it. And he wanted to be known. He wanted to be in the newspapers. He wanted his clothing to be put in museums after he was executed, and so forth and so on. And so over the coming years, there's a number of other anarchists who are similar. The anarchist who assassinates the Empress of Austria, he also wants, you know, to be studied by his brain to be studied by scientists after he's executed. To his dismay, uh, he, he executes the Empress of Austria in Switzerland. Switzerland doesn't have the death penalty. And so he's really disappointed he doesn't get executed because he wants to be one of these martyrs. And I think that kind of shows you the mindset that develops. Now, you, you allude to the problem, right? The problem is that this doesn't always work, both in terms of targeting the person they're trying to target and in terms of building resistance, not only because uh, a lot of people, particularly people who had nothing to do with it, get arrested and imprisoned, but also because over time, the, the kind of symbol gets lost. So initially in the 1890s, I think you can see that a lot of working class people in a country like Spain or France would be sympathetic to one of these attacks to the degree to which the, the target made sense, to the degree to which there weren't collateral damage, bystanders weren't injured and so forth. So when Payas attacked uh, General Martinez Campos in 1893, he's executed. There are these lithographic portraits sold on the Rambla in Barcelona, and they're so popular that the authorities have to confiscate them all when he's buried. So many people come to his grave to pay homage to him that the authorities were concerned they would dig up his, his bones. Um, but over time, that kind of, I think, celebration starts to wane a bit uh, to the degree to which in 1907, uh, a really strange thing happens in Barcelona. There's this former anarchist named Juan Rule who basically turns dynamite into a business, uh, by which I mean he went to the governor of Barcelona and said, hey, I've got all the inside connections on the anarchists and their bombs. If you pay me, I'll make sure that no more bombs go off. And so the anarchist, uh, no, sorry, the governor pays him, says, oh, that's great. Bombs don't really go off. After a little while, the governor says, ah, this is a waste of money. I'm not going to pay him anymore. And so Rule, in order to justify his pay, sets off a few bombs uh, in public places, in markets and so forth, comes back to the governor and says, you see, without me, you're going to have a bomb problem. And so over time, once this is exposed to the public, even the symbolism of the bomb starts to wane within Catalan society, for example. And there's a shift towards revolutionary syndicalism with the creation of Solidaridad Obrera in 1907, which is the predecessor of, of Confederación Nacional del Trabajo, the CNT, which comes to be, you know, the, the symbol of anarchist participation in the Spanish Civil War uh, into the 1930s. Such a shame when terrorism gets too commercial. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a, strange, uh, a strange result that you wouldn't necessarily predict. But I think that certainly by, by the first decade of the, of the 20th century, 
within anti-authoritarian circles, most folks are, are of the mindset that they need to get back to organizing. Could, could you talk a bit about this idea that uh, these people were sort of early human rights campaigners? Yeah. So, so on the face of it, I think anyone who's familiar with, with anarchist theory or history would kind of maybe recoil at that proposition because certainly the politics and rhetoric of human rights as they've developed out of the United Nations and Amnesty International and have come to be associated with NGOs and so forth over the past 50 years or so is, is, is a decide, not only a non-revolutionary enterprise, but in many ways an anti-revolutionary enterprise that seeks for the most part not to really challenge structures like capitalism or the state writ large, but to ameliorate their worst excesses. And so in that sense, it doesn't seem to have anything to do with the revolutionary vision of anarchism. But I, but if you actually read what anarchists were writing at the turn of the 20th century, you'll notice that the kind of rhetoric of universal rights, the rights of humanity, that they, to some extent, borrowed from the era of the French Revolution is really front and center in how a lot of anarchists talk about their vision of a future society of social transformation and so forth. And that was particularly the case in these transnational campaigns that they organized to liberate their comrades. Rather than turning to the laws of the state and saying, oh, what the state is doing is illegal, they would make an appeal and they would use the language of rights very frequently and very intentionally. They would say what, what's, what is being aggrieved in these contexts is the rights of humanity, these universal principles which are beyond and uh, take precedence over the, the artificial and unjust laws of states. And I, I think that generally historians of human rights don't know anything about this. I mean, you know, when I have conversations about this stuff for audiences that come to this conversation from the angle of being interested in anarchism, this this sounds kind of weird. But if you, if you look at the rhetoric, it challenges the periodization of human rights that a lot of historians have. And, and the other thing that I think some uh, a lot of anarchists would sort of maybe feel somewhat nauseated about, but but is like a historical fact is that a lot of these anarchists of the beginning of the 20th century saw themselves as the rightful defenders of the legacy of liberalism. They saw themselves as defending the true nature of liberalism, which is the individual individualism against the state, which they argued really violated this notion of individualism. And that that stands in sharp contrast with Marxism, which uh, didn't uh, see itself as the inheritor of liberalism. Now, after, of course, after World War II, and, and in recent decades, anarchism has been significantly influenced by post-structuralism and feminism and black ra- the black radical tradition and all sorts of other intellectual influences that have pushed it away from the veneration of classical liberalism and positivism and, and, and these kinds of important elements of thought that molded how a lot of anarchists, particularly in Europe, but elsewhere thought at the beginning of the 20th century. But at the time, that's, that's what a lot of them were saying and thinking, and it comes through in these campaigns. Speaking of these influences, what, what sort of influence did Freemasonry have on all of this? Freemasonry became this kind of network at the turn of the 20th century that brought together particularly different kinds of radical Republicans, free thinkers, anarchists, uh, people that were part of the, the neo-Malthusian movement, which was more or less uh, a pseudo-eugenicist movement for birth control 
And I think that if you look at some of these alleged conspiracies that anarchists are part of to assassinate the king of Spain or other kinds of movements, they're often not just working with other anarchists, they're working with radical Republicans who want a republic in Spain and want to overthrow the, the monarchy. And they frequently get to know each other through these Masonic connections. So one of the most famous and important figures in this in this vein is Francisco Ferrer, the founder of the modern school in Barcelona in the beginning of the, the 20th century. I have another book I edited called Anarchist Education and the Modern School of Francisco Ferrer Reader that has all sorts of stuff about him and books and other writings he did. But he he he's at the nexus of a lot of these networks. He works with different kinds of radical Republicans and socialists and free thinkers and neo-Malthusians and so forth. And that allows, in, in the context of France, where some of these Freemasons are even higher up in the government, it sometimes allegedly allowed some of these anarchists to avoid repression because they had sympathetic people in higher up in the state. In Spain, that wasn't the case. But Whereas, you know, Freemasonry originally had a kind of religious orientation, over time, there developed a kind of uh, more secular Freemason identity and network, and, and the anarchists took great advantage of it in Spain, France, and elsewhere. Yeah, I was a bit taken aback when the Masons showed up in the book, because you don't really think of them as being uh, especially radical these days. No. Although you don't know, do you? N- well, I mean, hey, you never know what they're up to, right? I don't know. Um, but n- not really, right? Like, the, that ceased to be the case. And, and you know, I remember as a younger person learning about Nazi repression, right, the 30s and 40s, and, and seeing how they, among other groups, repressed Freemasons and thinking like, what 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 was going on there? And clearly, they associated it with these kinds of conspiracies in the beginning of the 20th century. Mark, the campaigns to free many of the anarchists who were imprisoned for allegedly being responsible for these various uh, outrages um, also had a strong international and transnational dimension. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about how this tied into struggles in the colonies, the anti-colonial struggles in Cuba and the Philippines, the territories that, that Spain was struggling to uh, hold on to during this period. So so you're right that in the 1890s, there are anti-colonial struggles in the Philippines and, and Cuba. Regarding the, the, the Cuban case, for example, anarchists and their allies who were campaigning against abuses at home frequently linked them to the colonial abuses. And that was also the case in France, which had a very strong Cuba Libre movement, where there would be demonstrations against atrocities in Cuba and Spain, and they would sort of rhetorically connect all of these struggles as being part of what they called the revival of the Inquisition, which, you know, hence the title of the book, Anarchist Inquisition. Apart from that, I don't know of too many concrete instances of actual like material collaboration on the part of Cuban revolutionaries and uh, anarchists in Spain. One potential um, exception could be the fact that in 1897, when the Italian anarchist Michel Angiolio assassinated Spanish Prime Minister Canovas del Castillo while, while he was uh, vacationing in a spa in the Basque Country, allegedly the representative of the Cuban revolution in France, uh, a Puerto Rican figure named uh, Betances, he allegedly helped Angiolio with his plot and financed him and so forth. There's no tangible concrete evidence that he did. And when Betances was asked his thoughts on the death of Canovas, who was considered the architect of what is really a genocide in Cuba, um, the, the, the reconcentration of hundreds of thousands of Cubans in concentration camps, and if that 
term sounds out of place to some listeners, it's important to clarify, right, that concentration camps existed before the Nazis. They were, they were used to concentrate, you know, indigenous populations in the Americas. They were used in South Africa. They were used in various different places, including Cuba, where, where hundreds of thousands of people died in, in awful uh, conditions. That Canovas, who was considered the architect of this, Batanzas was asked about his death and he said, well, we don't celebrate, but we don't mourn either. So certainly shows his orientation around that. Regarding Philippines and the Filipinos, uh, uh, quite a few of the Filipino revolutionaries were actually, when they were arrested, were sent to Spain. And some of them were put in the same prison, Montjuic Castle in Barcelona, as some of the anarchist and re- uh, Republican revolutionaries. Some of them shared cells together. They talked politics, uh, recommended books to each other. And so uh, scholars have, have found that the first anarchist and Marxist texts ever brought to the Philippines from Europe came as a result of these interactions. And because the Filipinos were not used to the climate, anarchists organized clothing drives to get their families to bring clothing to, you know, to, to clothe the Filipino revolutionaries. And authorities took note of this. And after a while, they got so concerned at the possibility of anti-colonial anarchist collaboration that they started sending the Filipino prisoners to some of the penal colonies that Spain had established on islands off the coast of Africa. But, um, you know, it's worth pointing out in all of this that, you know, this is an era of uh, imperial abuse by European powers uh, around the world in Africa and Asia and elsewhere. And so it's worth it's worth bearing in mind that yes, the anarchists did bring up what was going on in Cuba and Philippine in the Philippines, but at least in in countries like Spain and France, tended to pay much less attention to what some of the some of the abuses that were really the worst abuses happening in the world at the time in Africa and elsewhere, such as uh, King Leopold's genocide in Congo Free State. The British anarchists seemed to be a little bit more attuned to what was going on. I think because of their focus on what the British Empire was doing uh, around the world. But ultimately, I think you can see that the language and this is I bring this up in the introduction. And and I think it's important for for radicals to be have a critical lens looking at, uh, you know, uh, radicals of the past, is that the language that anarchists in Spain and France would often use to denigrate the inquisitors of the state often really echoed the same kind of language that the inquisitors would use to criticize them. And that often revolved around holding up uh, Africa in particular as a model of quote unquote barbarism or savagery. So, so the line would go, the inquisitors are being so brutal and barbaric that they threaten to bring Spain back to a state of pre-civilization that resembles the worst, quote unquote, savages of Africa. And some anarchists would use this language. And I think it's important for us to be critical of it and to recognize how try as they might to break out of the imperialist and racist norms of the day, uh, a good number of European anarchists and radicals failed to completely transcend that. And, and you know, that's, that's a historical lesson that no matter who we are, and as much as we try, we are always subject to the historical forces that exist around us. In terms of the I guess the ways in which human rights are understood uh, now as emanating from or, or constituting an important part of a, a liberal social order, at the same time, as you, you point out in the book, uh, anarchists had some role in defending some notion of human or natural rights at the end of the 19th and early 20th century. 
Do you think that uh, notwithstanding the kinds of criticisms that have been mounted subsequently and uh, all the horrors that have been associated with the liberal order, that there's something worthwhile about retaining some concept of rights? And I ask for two reasons. One is because, as I think you also referenced, the Bolshevik project, you know, consciously disavowed any adherence to, to rights in this sense. Um, but also we have contemporary debates about things like rights to privacy, the privacy of the individual as opposed to the surveillance state and its kind of more intensive forms of surveillance and control. So um, do you think it's at all useful to try and uh, reinvigorate some notion of rights? And, and if so, what, what form do you think that might take? Yeah, that's a good question. Well, certainly, uh, you know, from a kind of anarchist or anti-authoritarian perspective, the crux of the politics is trying to balance and synthesize the, the the needs and the interests of the collectivity and the individual and and trying to uphold both of them without hurting either. And that's a, a very difficult task to do. And certainly when it comes to issues around privacy or any kind of individual needs, there has to be, if you if you want to uphold the individual, there have to be limits on the collectivity and vice versa. Now, what we call those things, if we want to call them rights, if we want to call them something else, Anarchists are fond of using the language of autonomy, but I think in, 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 in practice, in, in a meaningful sense, if we talk about autonomy, individual autonomy, collective autonomy, or we talk about individual or collective rights, it ends up being more or less the same thing that we're talking about, right? Empowering certain demographics, limiting the, the ability of, of the collectivity to interfere with that and so forth. Certainly the language of rights, it has an important role in how the majority of humanity thinks about politics. And so tapping into that language at times can be awfully useful, whether it's in the context of labor struggles or struggles around privacy or what have you. And so in that sense, it makes sense. I I don't feel like I have a, a strong opinion either way as to whether the language of rights is the best language for that. But certainly it, it seems to me that it's often among the most useful ways of phrasing it and in that sense could be used. But I think that most of the intellectual baggage that the turn of the 20th century anarchists had incorporated in their vision of universal rights is worth jettisoning in large part or entirely. But that doesn't, I think, preclude the possibility of reimagining a new kind of notion of universality that seeks to empower collectivities and individuals. And, and that's ultimately, I think, the element of continuity that binds people who call themselves anarchists today and from 100 years ago. One thing I noted in reading the book was, uh, or one of the things you briefly examined is, in terms of these campaigns and especially the Dreyfus affair, this was the moment at which the figure of the intellectual emerged. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about that. And also, I suppose, to relate it to contemporary in the contemporary sense, what is the role of the intellectual today in this context in terms of rights and, and fighting against repression? So you're right. The, the term intellectual in its, in its modern usage emerged, emerged in the context of the Dreyfus Affair when there was this kind of secular, anti-clerical, leftist response to the state's uh, imprisonment of the Jewish captain Alfred Dreyfus, who was wrongfully accused of treason in the 1890s. And you can see the influence of this kind of focus on the intellectual, particularly in press campaigns with the transnational anarchist campaigns that 
gained a lot of their momentum through newspaper articles, both from sort of collective articles written by imprisoned anarchists and radicals, but also from key figures, one of which was the anarchist John Monsain, who went by the alias of Federico Orales. And he's probably best well best known historically as being the father of Federico Monsain, who was one of the main figures of, of the CNT during the Spanish Civil War. And he sort of self-consciously crafted this intellectual persona as someone who in the press could be uh, looked to as a, a kind of beacon of justice. And he wasn't the only one. I mean, the, the more famous one in the French context is uh, Zola, right? But nevertheless, th- this shows the importance of, of the press and of these kind of key figures. Over time, in the course of these campaigns, I think organized labor came to play uh, a significant force as well. But in the context of the Montjuic campaign, labor was um, not particularly strong in Spain because of repression and some other factors. Today, I mean, I think that certainly, regardless of one's politics, it's clear that at times, writers and speakers can play an outsized role from a kind of intellectual angle in in the public debate. But I I also think that anti-authoritarians should also have a kind of a wary eye at disproportionately giving attention to individuals in contexts when we're trying to foment popular collective struggles. And I think that in general, there's more value in collectively written texts that come out of forms of struggle that don't elevate individuals too much above the the, the collectivity. And, you know, I mean, I say that as someone who, to some extent, in the context of the the media interest in anti-fascism over the last few years sort of ended up being one of those people. And to the degree that I could, I, I tried to emphasize that you know, I'm a historian, and I did some interviews and read some books, but I'm not actually part of the struggle and and tried to bring journalists as much as possible to talk to, to anti-fascists who were doing the work themselves. And so I, I think that I, I played a, a somewhat of a useful role. And, and I've had comrades tell me the, the same, but I think that there's there's a limit to be had to how much we should be sort of putting our eggs in the basket of individuals when we're really trying to to promote more of a sense of collective struggle and collective intellectual production. The other question, Mark, relates back to the question of rights and um, social struggles. And it was partly generated by the, the epilogue to your book in which you note that uh, of late in Spain, there's been a, some other um, bombings of one sort or another, but the, the, the anarchist response was quite distinct from that of this earlier period, it did not invoke the notion of rights. It was concerned with other matters, including uh, notions of um, prison abolition and and so on. And I recall having a um, we had a conversation at the start of the year with uh, Jock Palfreyman, who's the uh, former prisoner who established right. a union in Bulgaria. And one of the things he said was that it was important for him, or he wanted others to understand that some of these struggles over establishing legal rights and other kinds of in, in rights or entitlements of prisoners is actually, you know, very important and is one of the things that many prisoners in these struggles are demanding or are struggling to assert in these contexts and, and, sure. and because they're the most useful. So I guess I wonder now, from a contemporary anarchist perspective, maybe this harks back to the earlier question about, you know, rights and their place within anarchist discourse. 
but what do you see is, I guess, being the tensions within um, contemporary anarchism in regards to rights and to social struggles uh, more generally? And, and, and do you think that, ex- or how do you think that examining this anarchist history can assist contemporary anarchists in coming to terms with those questions and those struggles? Well, that there's been a tension since since the, the middle of the 19th century between trying to have a revolution right now and trying to make things better right now. And um, obviously, on the one end, you you had, in, in, you know, in the 19th century and, and still today, the, the kind of insurrectionary argument that trying to make things better now is, is, is a, in, to some extent, a folly and makes people more complacent and actually ends up supporting uh, the status quo. And then you have the kind of social anarchist or, you know, you see this with different kinds of strains, anarcho-syndicalist uh, being probably one of the most obvious argument that we can build power through making things better in the workplace and beyond. And that those kinds of strategic improvements build power and organization that can eventually, uh, when we reach a critical mass, create a revolutionary force that can uh, build a new world. And so not necessarily seeing things that materially improve our lives as being antithetical to the ultimate goal. And and that latter perspective is is the one that I'm more sympathetic to politically. And in the content, and I think you, you see that also um, that that's the predominant view when it comes to prison abolitionist politics, both from an explicitly anarchist and, and, uh, and from other kinds of perspectives. So shifting here to the United States, for example, where particularly in the context of Black Lives Matter, and the, the huge protest movement of 2020 that happened in response to the police killing of George Floyd, you'll see that particularly from the black radical tradition, the, the abolitionist argument is, yes, we want to get rid of prisons, but we know that's not going to happen overnight. And in the interim, there are tangible things that can be done to make prison not as terrible and to make the power of the prison system uh, a bit weaker. And so certainly trying to mobilize around improvements within prisons, both mobilization on the part of, of prisoners and people outside, um, sometimes in conjunction with each other, is important and weakens the power of the prison system, even if only by a drop. And, you know, the prisoner organizing plays an important role in the history of radical struggle over the last, you know, 200 years since there have been prisons, and that, that ought to be recognized and in terms of the language of rights, I think that that kind of comes back to the conversation we had earlier, that talking about the rights of prisoners is useful and is a, a kind of idiom that resonates with people more than maybe some other abstract phrasings that I think when you kind of boil it down mean more or less the same thing. And so in that sense, I think talking about prisoner rights is useful. The language that Spanish anarchists used in recent years in response to state repression of the movement that they, they, they used, um, I mean, this is, this is one banner, right? I'm sure that there were multiple different phrasings used by different groups. So I don't want to overstate it, but one banner that, that was used at one demonstration said neither innocent nor guilty. Right. And so I, I think on the one hand, we can balance pushing for the rights of prisoners, ameliorating some of the worst, uh, abuses of imprisonment and incarceration, and also recognizing that we don't have to completely, you know, we don't have to recognize the legitimate, the legitimacy of the state. And so I think that slogan, neither innocent nor guilty, gets at the crux of that. And it says, you know what, these people who allegedly set off these, these bombs, 
we are calling for them to be released regardless of whether they did it or not. And I think that that that, that promotes, I think, um, a powerful abolitionist message, but doesn't necessarily preclude trying to make it so that those anarchists or other people who are in prison have a slightly less awful time. Mark, you've done turn-of-the-century Spanish anarchists, you've done Occupy Wall Street, you've done Antifa. What's next? Honestly, at the moment, I have, I have two little kids and I'm exhausted. So I don't know. Um, I, I'm, I've been teaching. I've been parenting. I haven't really, I've been reading this, that, and the other, but I don't have uh, a definite next thing. So uh, I'll have to say uh, to be determined. Uh, sorry to disappoint. <laughs> no worries. We'll keep our eyes peeled. Well, that's all we've got time for. Uh, Mark is on Twitter at Mark double underscore Bray. And the book is called The Anarchist Inquisition, Assassins, Activists, and Martyrs in Spain and France, available in all good bookstores. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. Well, Andy, that's the show. For this week, Cam, yes. We'll be back, though, won't we? We will be. Uh, we'll be back next week, and also you'll be able to pick up a transcript of this in our ASIO files in about 30 years, I think. <laughs> oh, see you later. Bye-bye. mob it's time to get back to the community so get your proof of vaccination ready get started by creating a mygov account if you don't already have one and linking your medicare number 
Then add your COVID-19 digital certificate to the Service Victoria app. Now you're ready to go. Your COVID-19 digital certificate is your ticket. Let's show it with kindness to the businesses we visit and the Victorians who run them. Visit coronavirus.vic.gov.au forward slash vaxproof. Authorised by the Victorian Government, Melbourne. A 3CR supporter.